In our industry, there are few things more beautiful than a perfect pairing. Yelp Guest Manager has officially integrated with Reserve with Google, creating the largest consumer network in the U.S. Leverage Yelp Guest Manager to offer reservations, next-gen waitlist, and take out to 64 million more consumers than OpenTable. To supercharge your restaurant's marketing and operations, visit restaurants.yelp.com today. Comscore Media Metrics, based on Yelp Guest Manager, Reserve with Google, and OpenTable monthly average number of visitors in the U.S., 2022. Now here we go. We've always found that the best thing operations can do to maybe help market and raise revenue is by doing what we do well so that your satisfied customer becomes a loyal customer. Somebody is there, they obviously like what's going on. How do we get them to come more often or spend more while they're there or bring others with them next time? Now, all three of those operational principles raise revenue. And yet none of them have you chasing the inevitable new customer down the street. So that's kind of the basis we always like to come from is how can we just do what we're doing now better rather than always thinking of more. So yeah, more is not always better. Better is doing what you do better. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Chris Tripoli has been around the block a few times. He's built major chains, worked as an independent owner and operator, and eventually found his way into a successful restaurant consulting practice. And after working with countless brands over the years, he began to see similarities, common problems, and common solutions. In today's conversation, we unpack the most common problems owners face and the practical solutions to solve them. I think people like to listen to people that are willing to share what they've learned. I think they are willing to listen and learn from people who have been in the trenches and done it and that are willing to open. I'm a very open person about what I've learned in all my years of the restaurant business, what I've done well and what I haven't and how I've learned from both. And so I think the combination of being an operator and then being an educator, writer, consultant is an pretty good combination that people kind of like to learn from. And then what would you say your core specialization is? Operations, the actual maintaining consistency of operations, which is a combination of what I call the three P's. Uh, It's a combination of people, product, and the process procedures. I mean, there are other things, of course, that I have experience in and dabble initial concept development, assisting people with expansion, franchising, merger. But the specialty, I think, would just be trying to actually do better and improve operationally. And what inspired the move from ownership and operations into consulting? A funny story. I sort of morphed into it. I was always in the industry from a kid, teenager, working. My first visions was if I could just be a successful manager for people because it was just a fun way to make a living. And while that would be cool, Well, I had an early opportunity to be in management and then help grow a small independent restaurant group, learned a lot. And then while I was young, I had a couple of investors that liked my idea. So I moved into ownership. 
So at a very young age, now I'm running a company and I'm expanding a company. It was a casual chain. We expanded through a couple of cities in Texas. And I joined then a larger group, an entertainment-based group that wanted to start developing restaurants. And so how I morphed into consulting was that that company, once we created a really cool high-end seafood restaurant, and we had a couple of other things that we were working on as well, knew that that company was going to split and sell. And so my small hospitality, what they called business development department was ending. So actually I morphed into consulting by being laid off from a high level executive position. And I knew that the type of work I was doing for them on salary could be done for a number of say smaller independent hands-on operators that might just need direction and assistance, but at their size, they don't have a home office. So anyway, that gave birth to in my first stab at consulting, a company I called a la carte food service consulting group, and I was off to the races. And is there a universal ideology? So I coach specifically on restaurant marketing. There are really only three sides to it, right? Like the first is maximizing profitability off the money you're currently making, acquiring new customers, and then increasing customer frequency. That is restaurant marketing in a nutshell, yeah. regardless of tier of dining, like it all fits within that mental framework for me, at least. Is there a mental framework that you use in a similar vein for operations? You know, there is. Yeah. We always like to say that the principles of every operation are the same, whether it's a small counter service, whether it's high volume or low volume, whether it's full service, with or without alcohol, with or without a catering division, the principles of operations are pretty much the same. However, how you manage and how you prioritize those principles vary among every client. And so that's the way we've always approached it. There's the need to make sure you have a well-defined purpose. And this is probably something that I know maybe twists you a little bit because you work on the marketing angle. One of the first things that we always have to work with is to make sure that there's a clear understanding of who the customer is. Mm -hmm. And although sometimes that sounds simple, you probably struggle with it too. Too many times the operators think they're the customer and they're making decisions based on themselves. And they're choosing things like structure, a marketing plan, a menu plan based on what they like. And I have to remind them that unless they plan on cloning themselves and coming in 300 times a day, they may not be the customer. And so even though they're the owner, the operator, that just means that they have final approval on things. It doesn't mean they're the boss. So we have to get people to really listen to their customers. And by studying the item sales reports and by staying, the closer you stay to the customer, and the less time you spend in a boardroom or in the office, the smarter you become. And those are some of the basic principles that we work with. And from that framework, it seems to work, <laughs> whether it's a multi-unit client or, say, a brand new mom and pop hands-on operator. And the same is true with marketing. But I would assume that when you dig into operations, like everybody buckles up and they're ready to do so much more. But like with marketing, it's about doing less. It's about subtraction. It's about becoming maniacally focused on the two or three things that actually move the needle. Have you found the same to be true with operations? Yeah, that's another great similarity. I think that the listeners are probably, you know, tripping over themselves right now because they might be finding that, well, yeah, that's how they do it. In order to get busier, we need to do more. And that is not necessarily the case. We've always found that the best thing operations can do to maybe help market and raise revenue is by doing what we do well so that your satisfied customer becomes a loyal customer. 
that means that you're preaching to the choir. If somebody is there, they obviously like what's going on. How do we get them to come more often or spend more while they're there or bring others with them next time? Now, all three of those operational principles raise revenue. And yet none of them have you chasing the inevitable new customer down the street. So that's kind of the basis we always like to come from is how can we just do what we're doing now better rather than always thinking of more. So yeah, more is not always better. Better is doing what you do better. A question that I ask all of my restaurant clients is, what's your favorite restaurant? And what would they have to do to compel you to come back? And more often than not, it's just remind them that they exist, right? That's the hurdle. The hurdle is staying front of mind. But by and large, your best customers don't need an incentive. They don't need a seasonal menu. They just need to be reminded that you exist and be invited back. When it comes to operations, through this lens of doing less, what are typically, when you're triaging, the things that you you end up stripping out first? Well, we always start from the guest point of view. And in fact, sometimes physically we'll do that. We'll say, operator, let's just walk in. Now let's stand by the front door. And if you are a guest, how is this feeling? What's the concept sending me? What's the vibe? It's the balance of the vision of the design. And here's the big one, the friendliness of staff. If you're walking in and you see that people are either preoccupied, not welcoming, then is this a place where you feel like you're special? where you belong. And that's what the customer needs to feel. So we always start from a position of the guest point of view. And how are we going to make that guest feel connected so that they feel like, hey, I belong here. And that then opens up a whole can of things from how we're going to sometimes improve the ambiance. But mostly it's how we're going to improve and raise the level of consistent operations. Operators are very surprised sometimes when they just go in and sit like a customer and they start noticing the little things that other guests would see that the staff are just not being attentive to. And that's a big challenge today is getting the guest's service level high enough, friendly enough, and consistent enough to keep that customer bonding with you concept rather than just leaving and going somewhere else next time. And how do you differentiate between what's actually going to move the needle and what's a distraction. So often in my own career, we were trying to make minor tweaks, right? Adjusting this and adjusting that. And then we've got to adjust steps of service as a result. And then there's got to be accountability and implementation involved. And then the guest doesn't even notice. It's not something that actually moved the needle. How do you, as a consultant, guide people in the direction of the things that will move the needle and eliminate all of these distractions that don't. Well, that's a pretty good approach to each of the areas that we go into, whether it's analyzing the people or whether it's analyzing the product or the process. That is what we prioritize is what's making impact. How can we do more of what works? And then how can we do less of what doesn't? Because to speak to your point, see, it's less of what doesn't really work or what the distractions are. We find a lot of that sometimes in menu where we need a clear point of difference. And what is that clear point of difference? What's really working? Well, the item sales report might tell us that. The gross margins in our items might tell us that. Well, then why don't we do more of what's working 
and less of what isn't. Same thing with steps of service. Maybe a simpler way of serving the guest, but then being able to do that in a more consistent manner is what works best for our concept, rather than, again, trying to do too many things. There are a lot of restaurants that are adapting to a different style of service. They're maybe cutting back on that formal table service, nine steps of service from greeting to suggestive selling to food presentation, save room for dessert, thank you, et cetera, to a different level of service. A lot of it is the counter ordering. And we're seeing a tremendous increase in that where fast casual seems to be a winner. Guests seem to feel like there's value for their time. If they can go, order, sit, they've already paid, they sit where they want, they leave when they want. And so a lot of restaurants are switching to that. So then our challenge is how can you, within a period of time, create a little point of difference, something that's welcoming, something that shows gratitude, something that shows follow-up. And a lot of people now develop sort of an area server mentality where, hey, we'll still have people work the room. It's not formal service, but we're still working the room. We're touching the tables. We're smiling. We're offering the refills. We're pre-bussing. So we're going to do a little limited amount of service. But as long as we do that consistently and we do it in a friendly manner, then we're showing people that we're valuing what you value. You value convenience. You value your time, but we're also still showing you that you're important and we're trying to bond a little bit and give you some friendliness so that you know you are important here. And that seems to be working in some cases. So as it relates to people, how are you encouraging your clients to recruit great talent and to retain great talent? Got great question. And it's probably the biggest challenge that we see out there now. I'm working with a restaurant group on a full-time basis. It's a consulting group called the Restaurant Clinic, headed up by my brother. He's got a really good team, and I'm having a ball helping him. And he likes to put it in a preference of there's three steps. In order to win a managing labor today, you first have to embrace the change. You can't be an operator in denial. (laughs) And many are. There are many that are just stuck thinking that COVID's changes are going to go back to the way it was. People are going to just be coming in looking for work. People are going to work in a manner that they have been. And I don't get that. This is not a speed bump in the road. It's a new road. And the winners are the people who have embraced that change. Staff are looking for different things. So get used to it and identify it. And then the second step is engaging with the staff. You want to find more and better staff? Make the current staff really bond with you and be involved in your daily operation. The best suggestions for new staff when you need them typically come from current staff. So why alienate? Engage your current staff on operational details, ideas to improve concept, improve guest service. They normally have a tremendous amount of information. The more they feel involved, happier they are. Happier they are, longer they stay, and the better work that they do. And then the third one, and this is one that I think we have some trouble with today, and that's the idea of managers empowering staff and operators empowering their managers. Give direction, give support, show gratitude, do correction, evaluation. Don't do the doing because that hands-on micromanagement doesn't work for today's staff, certainly doesn't work for today's managers either. So I think that's the best way to win in today's labor market and probably for the foreseeable future is you better embrace the change and make sure that you're offering what people are looking for. They're not just coming into work now and feeling like if I put in a good day's work and I get a reasonable wage, I'm in. No, they're looking for a place to belong. They're looking for a place where they feel like they are a part of a program. 
and that they're important. So if you're going to cross-train them, if you're going to involve them, they might feel like, okay, I can be here. What's in it for me? Ah, I see. There's something in it for me. Okay, I can join here. Then, of course, keeping them engaged, keeping them involved. As I mentioned, when we work with clients, a lot of times the best thing is if there's things to correct or things to improve on, we want to focus group with the key staff because it's very interesting the amount of solutions that come from the people who are doing the doing. And as long as you can do that and then you can empower your managers and give them the style of direction and support that works today, you've got a pretty good chance of winning in today's market. What I found myself was transformative in my businesses. I was showing my work. Instead of saying, this is what we're rolling out and this is going to be the result, saying, you know, this is the idea. And so because of this idea, we're going to roll this thing out and this is the expected result, but we don't really know what's going to happen. So let me know what kind of reaction you guys are getting from the patrons, how you feel about the overall sales process, and we'll sort it out from there. When it felt collaborative, even when arguably it was not, but when people felt like they were informed, even if they didn't participate in the decision making, there was a lot more buy-in what is alarming. And one of my clients is located in Wisconsin. And what he was explaining is, and I thought it was riveting, and I think it speaks to a larger issue in the industry. He was saying that he's losing cooks left and right to larger regional chains, that instead of competing by offering appetizers to customers for a quarter, are cannibalizing the labor market by offering obscene hourly rates. In Wisconsin, paying $26 an hour to a line cook paying more than that to a sous chef, trying to drive their competition out of business through lack of labor. Have you seen any of that? Well, in some cases, yeah. And in some markets, especially if there are limited choices, smaller markets, if one or two restaurants just declare that I'm going to run a higher labor cost, I might attract more people because I'm just simply paying higher wages. The only thing that we've seen, and I'm thinking of a, of a particular person now in California, where he's been able to win, even though he's a independent. Now he's a very popular, well-established single unit operator. And he does have some multi-unit regionals that are in his market. And he knows that they do have starting wages that are higher. But he's noticed that even though he might lose a little bit on that wage war, where he wins are the people that are working with him that feel connected, aren't interested in looking elsewhere because they bonded, they feel important. They feel a part of the program. And as long as they're making a reasonable wage, they don't feel like they need to leave just because somebody new or some regional chain down the street is willing to pay more. So it does happen sometimes. But the one thing that we have working for us is that we're working with a new generation of staff that compensation isn't just the driving force. It is obviously important, but so is their quality of life. And so is the quality of their work. So uh, I would tell my clients, if you can win on those other fronts, if people feel like I want to choose to work here because you're giving me consideration for my lifestyle or how I do my schedule or what else is important for me, you're willing to work around me a little bit. That's good because my quality of life is as important as the money I bring home. And the quality of work, the fact that you're going to train, teach me some new things, cross train me and include me in on employee discussions, focus groups, and whatnot. So that, that kind of connects me at my core because everyone wants to feel appreciated and involved. So we can still win on those fronts. 
And then most of us, I have never had an opening where I was like, I would do everything the same. It's hard to start off on the right foot. And then once you faltered a little bit in the beginning of the process, no matter how many locations you open, you spend the rest of your time rebounding. But you have a really interesting strategy as it relates to opening restaurants. I think you call it the Ten Commandments. I do. Yes. Talk to me about that. Can you lay those out for me? Well, yeah, or I think at least, you know, most of them, you know, coming from memory. But yeah, what I call the Triple Ten Commandments are simply 10 steps that people really need to try to stick with. It starts from the initial concepting because, you know, Josh, as you've probably come across, too many people are interested in our industry that come from, say, other successful industries, but they're just drawn to opening a restaurant. They may not know why. They feel like they're compelled by passion. But too many people leave their industry that they've done well at, made money at, can't wait to take early retirement so they can open up, I don't know, a pizza place. And it's all because their mother-in-law makes a good marinara recipe or something. So the first step is you've really got to define your concept. And you can't try to be a little bit of everything to everybody. You've got to develop your concept. You've got to test out the concept. There needs to be a proof of concept. And proof of concept doesn't mean, well, everyone in the neighborhood says I barbecue good on Saturdays. So I guess if I do a really good brisket and my neighbors like it, I guess I should be in the barbecue business. No, you really need to develop that as a concept and to define who your customer is and then test that concept. Many people are doing that now through small focus groups, tastings, farmers markets, etc. The next step is you've got to formulate this concept into a business plan that you take that short deck that you did as a presentation and put it together with viable financials. And this is where it's really eye-opening because you might need to bring in a specialist to work with you so that you can understand all the nuances of opening a restaurant, how long it's going to take, what my sample menu should be, what are my pre-opening marketing plan going to be, what should this cost, why should it be the same size? All those questions have to be answered. So there's assistance out there. I would suggest that people write up a plan with a professional because that's where they're going to find that this might take twice as long as they're thinking. And it's probably going to cost twice as much as they were initially budgeting. Okay, now we're off to the races. You know, the next step, of course, is trying to find the right site. You need to get a specialist. You don't want to find a good site just because it's close to your home or it was a restaurant that closed and I know I can pick it up cheap. Both those things might be good. But you really want to find a location that fits your particular customer profile. So again, I would say work with an industry professional, not a broker that you know or like or someone that goes to church with your wife, somebody that specializes in restaurants. And so you're looking for the site. The next thing you're also doing is committing your funding. Funding for a first restaurant is typically what I consider uh, the combo platter for lack of a better term, <laughs> no pun intended. But typically, it's going to start with what the landlord might give in tenant improvement dollars to improve his or her space. But then it's also going to be matched by your personal equity. What can you put in? Then you might be able to go out to friends and family to see what kind of investment can I develop. Then you're finally ready to go to a bank because there is lending available. However, it's not necessarily standard. For all those people that say, well, I can never get a loan to open a restaurant, what I like to say is you may not ever get a traditional loan because even if you have tremendous credit and even if you have a really good banking relationship, in fact, even if this particular banker has been banking your other business, your whatever it was, wholesale distribution of 
oil related products. Once you go golfing with him and you tell him, Hey, I want to run a restaurant idea by you. You watch how quick he gets in the golf cart and he drives off because the restaurant funding just isn't that obviously accepted, but it is still possible. It isn't going to be as much as you think. You're not going to be able to walk into a bank and put 20% down and get an 80% loan. However, startup restaurants sometimes can get equipment leases or some funding that then matches what they've raised and what their personal equity is. So you combine it all together and you can get your funding. Okay, so now you've got a site, you've got your money, you've written your plan, you're off to the races, and you've got to manage that process. Some people get scared off because they know that they're not a design specialist. They know they're not a construction specialist, and you're not supposed to be but you are still their client. You're the final decision maker. So you want to be involved in that process. And you want to make sure that you've set up strategic meetings so that you stay the course. What you never want to hear is I've opened. Yay, I'm open. And then you look back and go, wasn't exactly what I was imagining, but I opened. And so you've got to stay involved in that process. During that process, you're going to be selecting vendors. And I always like to underline that step. You're selecting vendors. They're not selecting you. So just because somebody visits the site a lot and drops off the priceless a lot doesn't mean that he or she might be the best, freshest market to plate uh, produce delivery. So you want to make sure that you get references from various operators and you want to make sure you take the time to go visit the particular purveyors you're considering. Meet the people in the warehouse see how the product is handled, meet the people in accounting that you're going to be trying to get credit terms from and develop a relationship before you decide who I'm ordering from. Of course, during this process, another commandment is going to be test, test, recost and retest your menu development because you want to make sure that you've got all of your items in a row and you've got your menu meetings going well and your layout and your pricing. And then another one is take time to staff correctly too much time, we will hurry our hiring and we hurry our training. And that's just because it comes later in the game. And you don't ever want to do that. You want to open when you're ready and you're not really ready until you have got your management in place. They've developed their initial training. The initial training works. You've done at least a couple of mock services where you've got some practice. And that practice isn't just meaningless. It's also to develop confidence in that initial staff. So they look at each other and say, okay, you know what? I'm comfortable with where things are at. We've had a couple dry runs. If we hurry and we don't do that, then even if they were good hires, they're not comfortable with their knowledge, which means they're not going to go out there and confidently do their job. And you're opening with one foot in the hole already. Another commandment, of course, is to manage the budget. Too many times we worked very hard in the uh, business planning. We've got a good approved budget, but through the course of things, we dipped into the working capital or the contingency so that we could buy an extra fountain for the patio or something. And now we open up and we've got very little working capital. So even if everything else is in line and your concept makes sense and the site was the right site, and the menu is tasty and the staff is happy, if you don't have adequate working capital to give you a time to develop clientele and create profitable operations, then it's going to be too easy to fail. And you don't want to do all that work and then fail. And if you thought raising money to get your job done the first time was difficult, try raising money after you're open. And you said, I just need a little bit more from the investors, or I got to go to the bank and get another line of credit. It's almost impossible after you've opened. 
And then, you know, the final one is stay the course. If you've put a lot of thought into your concept, you developed a good point of difference, you found the location, the money, the people, etc. stay the course through the process. There's going to be different members of the team or different influences or different things you've read. And you think, oh, that might be good too. That might be good too. And then you don't ever want to open up looking like alphabet soup. So stay the course. And then the final one is please don't ever fear failure. If you're well-prepared, that's what I always like to tell a startup. It isn't about being scared. It's about being well-prepared. And if you're well-prepared and you stay the course, you have every opportunity to succeed in a restaurant as you would in any other startup business. So that's pretty much the triple E10 commandments in a nutshell. I thought it was valuable. I would argue that 99.99% of the folks that listen to this show already have an active restaurant. But it's valuable because there's no time like the present to go back and revisit those for two reasons. Number one, it can inform how you improve existing operations. But number two, the only thing I wanted in this world was to own a bar until I owned it. And then the only thing I wanted was to own two until I owned two. And then I wanted to own three. And I think one thing that kind of unites us all is this strong desire to grow vertically, horizontally. We're all looking for the next best thing. And so knowing that there is this really clear path to success and having you lay it out so beautifully, it brings me to the next question, which is, when is it time to grow? And what are the milestones or KPIs that we should be analyzing to know the best time to grow? Boy, yeah, excellent question. And you're right. As an operator myself, I wanted to duplicate. Most clients that we work with through the restaurant clinic are wanting to, they're wanting to grow, expand, build value in the brand. So sure, I think the way you know that you're ready to grow is when you have your initial operation smooth. You have your systems and processes in place. You've got a really good team that you're engaging with on a routine basis for continued improvement. So you feel like, you know what, I can now test myself and replicate. And the steps for replication to me always start with people. Sometimes I work with clients and they started with the site that was available. Or they started with the fact that, hey, my partners are very satisfied with our current unit and they're throwing money at me. Okay, both very important things because the location is absolutely positively important. Having the amount of funds, absolutely positively important. But to me, and sometimes my clients are surprised when we say, that's number two and number three. Number one item really is your people. You know that you're ready to grow when you have some bench strength in your first unit. And you know, these are people that are developing into management and that's wonderful. And I can go open a second store because I've got people, you know, that I can create value. And you don't ever want to open up unit number two by robbing unit number one and say, I can just get through the opening because I took my key people. That tells me that we're not ready to expand. But we know that you've got an expandable concept if you can actually open unit number two and unit number one didn't falter a bit. Even if you took some of the opening team, some of the key trainers, it didn't falter because your processes are so solid. Your management is so consistent. It didn't falter. Then you know that you've got an expandable concept. And how should we be growing? I know that you're a franchising expert. You know, some people just open a new concept. I did in a different tier of dining because I'm a masochist. For my second location, 
guys like Ari from Zingerman's, they vertically integrate, right? Yeah. So there are all of these different paths. But when it comes to like likelihood of success, what have you seen going from one to two and from two to many? What is the path of least resistance? Yeah, I think the best approach is to sit with the key owners and have them honestly be able to lay out a program that they see as their personal future. Then let's grow in a way that fits that. Because too many times I've had clients say, I know my concept is a relatively simple, easy to operate. So help me get this set up for franchising. Well, and, and we can, and we do. But not until we first talk about where do you see yourself in three years, four years, five years? Is it your personal goal to be sort of a supervisor of other companies? Or is it your personal goal something else? Uh, too many operators are very creative. And that's a good thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that expansion of one unit to two, three, five, eight, ten is their right path. Their right path might be more of a multi-concept management company so that they actually develop in one marketplace, use their creative, intuitive skills to go from one concept to then a second, and then put a good team of people together and do a third. And so they wind up having a very valuable multi-concept management. And it all came from sort of being selfish from a point of view and make your decision based on where you want to be. The restaurant industry is filled with a ton of unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I think the restaurant industry is at a really good opportunity to, to turn and, and make positive impact. I think our future is bright if we do that. And I think we have to start with people. I think it's wonderful that the industry has been making changes to show that it's really a people first industry. Because in the early years, or I go way back now, we never had that reputation. Restaurants seemed to be the place that you worked until you found your real job. Restaurants seemed to be a place that if you really liked it, you did it because of your passion because it was a horrible inconvenience to your life. Time, hours, commitment, etc. I think we're finding that, guess what? Restaurants can be tremendously successful, but they can still be people forward. And managers can feel very accomplished because they're managing and developing people. They're not just putting their thumb in a dike and having to work 80 hours a week. That doesn't work anymore. So I think the restaurants of the future, if, as long as we start with our people, can have a tremendous impact on the way we're seen as a business. Other thing that restaurants can do, and some do it very, very well too, but others need to do a little bit better job, I think, is to see how we really, really benefit the community. The restaurant business through COVID, I think, was reminded about how important we are to a community. Customers need that place to go. Uh, dining out isn't a luxury. It's a way of life. People dine out to match their particular lifestyle needs, whether it's quick, convenience, delivery, fast food, an evening with friends, a drink after work. I mean, it's what we do. It's part of our fabric. So if restaurants realize that, the more supportive we can be of our communities, the more involved we are with our communities. That whole conscious capitalism, I think, is a tremendous movement that restaurants need to join and be leaders in so that we can show that this is a great place a great industry to be a part of. 
And our restaurant is a great place to work. We're sure you can earn a living, but even more than that, you can be a part of something and that something is helping customers and benefiting the community. Our industry suffers from razor thin margins. And the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data driven decisions. The numbers don't lie. And Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with guest manager in Yelp ads? They experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Chris Tripoli. For more information on Chris, visit chrisTripoli.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.